Hi everyone and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel hosted by New Books Network. I'm Victoria Lupashku, one of the hosts for this channel. So today we are here with Chris Ray to talk about his most recent work, China's Chaplain, Comic Stories and Farces by uh, Xu Zhuotai. So welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Chris, and thank you very much for making the time to talk with us. Thanks for the invitation, Victoria. Um, so um, this is the third book length, if I'm not mistaken, uh, um, you know, uh, book length project coming out of your work on laughter, deception, jokes, farces in China during or before the 20th century. And I will not ask you about how you came to, the, to study Chinese and, you know, be interested in China because, you know, that was uh, done during the interview with Carla Napi. And I already you know, um, highly recommend that. Um, so I'm just going to ask you, uh, first of all, um, if you could tell me how uh, you got to be interested in this particular project. Xu Dai is a writer who was born in Suzhou and made much, most of his career in Shanghai in the kind of 1910s to 1940s. He lived into 1958. Uh, and I actually learned about him from Fan Boqun, who is a professor at Suzhou University who retired a I think over a decade ago, but I was at a conference in Suzhou where I met him and told him I was interested in researching Chinese humor from especially the late Qing and Republican era. And he said, oh, you should definitely check out this guy, Suzhou Dai. He was a really prolific writer, wrote a lot of funny stuff, and was kind of a comic celebrity in the Republican era. And so he was kind of Shanghai's funny man about town, right? He had a comic persona where like he was a great raconteur and he like loved practical jokes, but he also wrote hundreds and hundreds of works. And some of these were stage plays, some of these were short stories, a few novels. He also wrote screenplays for films and did a ton of other stuff. So I learned I learned about Shuzhou Dai through this scholar in Suzhou. Mm, very interesting. Yeah, so I think, you know, it kind of it, it connects very well with your previous work, right? And it kind of expands in a way uh, on what you've been talking previously. And I think just to, um, to, to go right into the depth of things, uh, the book China's Chaplain, right, is composed of an introduction in which you present uh, Xu's persona and his uh, cultural role in Republican Shanghai. Um, right, and then there's a connection, a collection of translated stories and a collection of translated farces, as well as an appendix where the names and their rendering into English is explained. Right, because they they are really funny when you read them in English, but you know it, it becomes way more interesting when you when you see uh, how the the translation uh, happened. Right, so. Um, I was wondering whether you could expand a bit on Xu's position in the print and cinematic culture that flourished in Shanghai during the Republic era. And, you know, we get a snippet of this through the book. Sure. And Xu Zhodai, I think, was really a very modern guy. And he had had a, an international education. He spent a couple years in Japan studying physical education and ballroom dancing. Uh, so not in medicine or engineering or anything like that. Uh, but he came back to Shanghai and he founded a couple of sports academies, teaching calisthenics, gymnastics, and the like. And so he was very, very physically active. But he also became fluent in Japanese. And he spent about 50 years translating Japanese literature into Chinese, stage plays, stories, and the like. So he was internationalized. And he was also very entrepreneurial. So he would join theater troops and found theater troops. 
He worked in advertising. Uh, he wrote for a, I think, one of the daily newspapers for an entertainment hall, right, an amusement hall in Shanghai. This is kind of a new department store of amusements institution that was popping up in major cities around China. And a, a lot of his humor, I and mean, some of it is very domestic. It's, you know, husbands and wives having domestic disputes. Some of it is related to Shanghai culture. So he was definitely a keen observer of what was going on in contemporary society. And he found that there were a lot of fraudulent advertisements, and he found there were a lot of scammers running about his town. And you had to be really careful uh, how you deal with people on the street. You have to know the local lingo. And so I think a lot of his humor dealt with that issue. But he's also, I, one of the stories I translated in this book, the International Currency Reform Conference, you know, it's, it's like economic humor. That sounds like an oxymoron, but this is, this is probably the only modern Chinese story that is a funny take on World War I and the economic depression that followed World War I. So very, he, he has some kind of unexpected um, linkages. So he seemed to have known everybody in 1920s to 1940s Shanghai, right? People from all walks of life, from martial arts to cinema. But, and he also wrote about all kinds of things that aren't, that don't fit easily into the whole, you know, we're worried about China and like, you know, what is China's fate? That kind of hand-wringing stuff. So he was very, I, I think he kind of went his own path. But yeah, and there's a lot more to say about his his film career too. But he really started in physical education, later um, worked in drama for a decade or so, and before moving into fiction in the 1920s. So he had a very, very diverse career. Right, and that speaks, I think, to um, what you 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 know mentioned a bit in the introduction, and also just now that you know there's this this take of cultural entrepreneurship that uh, when you think about Xu Zhuodai and you know the whole um, Republican period, um, it it comes to you know it comes up and uh, it makes you wonder you know about the spirit of the city of Shanghai at that time, but also how. People both in the publishing industry, you know, in the cinematic industry and, you know, all, all walks of life have transformed and maybe reinvented themselves. Maybe they didn't start, um, you know, off as thinking they would end up doing so many things. But definitely he is one of the more, you know, prominent figures that we can learn about today. Right. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I was curious, I, you know, when studying him, I, I knew I wanted to translate some of his works at the same time to give both myself a closer reading of them and, and to give other people a sense of the spirit of his works, right? His comedy is usually not well summarized. Uh, you have to actually read the stuff. Um, and, but you find things like, you know, he worked in all of these different careers. Well, how did this affect what he wrote? And so he has some stories that are in play script form. So this is like a new category that is explicitly cinematic or that is like a stage play and it's very dialogue centric and the like. And so, so I think a lot of his comedy does draw on these different sources. And he co-founded two film companies. He wrote one of what, what is sometimes considered to be China's earliest book on filmmaking technique. So he... Um, he keeps popping up in different uh, different types of cultural histories of modern China, um, sports sports history, 
and the like, as well as, you know, I've been writing him into Chinese comic history because he also, he kept writing after 1949, after uh, the communist takeover. And a lot of it was retrospective, writing about kind of old Shanghai culture before New China started. And so some of it was nostalgic, but he also like would contribute to anthologies theorizing the Huaji or comic or Shanghainese farce ethos and how that had arisen and what its history was. And so I think there's still some stories to be told about that change from the Republic into uh, Maoist China and what happened to comedy in that period. So Xu Dai, I think, had had his fingers in a lot of pies, you could say. <laughs> Definitely. I think so, too. And I will get, get back to this, um, to the question of, um, you know, the mechanics of the, the short stories and the mechanics of the, the plays. Because, uh, you know, as you read through the book, you do realize that, for example, in the story uh, called The Fiction Material Wholesale, Wholesaler, I'm sorry, um, there is this um, idea of entrance and exit that different characters come in, right? And then you kind of, after you finish reading the, the entire book, you realize that there is this visual, this movement, um, all these elements that influence each other from one genre to the other. And it takes more than just, you know, following the plot or, you know, the the intricacies of the stories to portray the entire environment in which he is writing. Um, but, you know, I'll come back to this um, a bit later when we get into more details about the stories. The question that I had to follow up on what you just said was about uh, Xu Zhou influence over the development of Chinese liter uh, literature in general. And here I'm thinking about Wang Shuo and his characters, you know, the swindlers and, you know, even you could, call it humor, um, right in the uh, 80s and 90s in China. And, um, you know, I'm trying to uh, connect, uh, you know, the publishing of comic stories and farces and this idea of the swindlers um, as a booming phenomenon to historical times of deep changes um, and the laughter's role in all of this. So I don't know if you see any connection between them or, you know, if you know of um, Xu's influence over, you know, more contemporary uh, works? Yeah, and I would say his influence is probably extremely limited. I think there are a lot of resonances, but and he was considered to be part of this Mandarin Ducks and Butterflies or popular literature school, which is very, very commercial, very commercialized, very market-oriented, which was repressed, and also very urban often. Um, so it was either considered frivolous or sentimental, but it was not really connected to labor in the, the Maoist communist sense. And so I think that there was definitely a break after 1949, where it was, a lot, it was hard for Xu Zhodai and a lot of his peers to get their works published. And so they had to either reinvent themselves or just go into retirement. So there, and his works were kind of rediscovered in the late 60s, early 70s, by just a handful of scholars. But I think it wasn't until the 80s that they started being republished. So someone like Wang Shuo, I do think he has some sensibilities that resonate with some of the old Shanghai comics. But, you know, he's very kind of like masculine Beijing style. Um, that's a bit of a cliche. But I doubt that he ever read any Xu Dai, even though he's also fascinated by tricksters. and. Um, people who are kind of bored, right? They're kind of bored and 
so they're therefore prone to mischief. And the, the International Currency Reform Conference, Shujo Dai's story, it begins with a reporter who's just bored stiff, like he has nothing to do, right? And he's kind of daydreaming there uh, before his editor calls him into his office. And then this whole chain of events starts. And I think in, in Wang Shuo's works, you have these idler characters who are, you know, looking for action, looking for opportunities and will jump in. And and there is also, I think, some resonance in the the importance of private enterprise that, you know, the late 80s, early 90s becomes very, very important in China. And you have like these heroic entrepreneur figures, even if they're a little shady and they do some underhanded stuff. So I think, yeah, there are some connections you can make. Yeah, I mean, I uh, one you know I won't dwell too much on this one, but one one um, you know story that comes to mind is when um, you know there are these um, you know tricksters that organize some sort of um, fictional literary prize award ceremony um, kind of thing, and you know it's all a farce, right? And that. Um, speaks to to the farces that um you know Shujotai is writing and you know for example the the devil's messenger right in which everything um you know goes well up to a certain point right um but yeah so i i definitely saw some connections but i wasn't you know particularly sure and i thought it would be of interest uh, for the readers to um also know uh, uh, you know your take on that so uh, now to turn to the stories, the book has uh, five independent stories and a collection of 12 short vignettes called the unofficial stories of Lia Mao. And how did you choose the, the these particular stories? And, you know, if you could talk a little bit about the recur- recurring themes uh, in them. Yeah, and I knew that I wanted to do the whole Lia Mao series. <clears throat> so this is not exactly a novella, but it's kind of a series of 12 linked stories that are linked by a, cer- a certain character. So Xu Zhodai, supposedly in the 1930s, had invented this character, Harry Lee, or Li Amao, Bo Shi. So he's a doctor, um, allegedly, but uh, maybe with spurious credentials. But he does seem to be extremely skilled at scamming people in Shanghai, sometimes for good, sometimes just for his own profit or for amusement. But this is a really interesting collection of stories because it was written between like 1941, 1942. And so it actually spanned Pearl Harbor and the outbreak of the Pacific War. So this is when Shanghai changed from being, you know, the Japanese are already in Shanghai. They've been in there since 1937. But at, you know, December 1941, they take over all of the foreign settlements. And so Shanghai is under full occupation. But we had this comic series being written that did continue. I think it was interrupted or delayed by a month or two. But it spans about a year. And so one of the last, second to last stories is called Japanese School, you know, um, where you have a Liamao is now teaching people how to speak Japanese because he realizes there is a commercial opportunity here and he and his friends are starving. And instead of charging tuition, they charge people rice or oil. And then he'll spend a, a whole month teaching them the word for rice, gome, right, or oil. And so, so it's 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 a very oblique way of alluding to the war. And um, so there are other surprises like that, and you can kind of read between the lines in some of these stories, which are very farcical. There's a lot about uh, shameless trickster figures, but um, 
you know, again, Shirodai was was fluent in Japanese, and he kept translating Japanese literature throughout the occupation period. He even had to go into business making what he called artificial soy sauce or scientific soy sauce, koshe jangyo, uh, to because he couldn't make ends meet just writing. And so he's he was definitely a survivor figure, and he wrote he wrote stories about like how do you stretch your you know make your rice last if you don't you know you can't buy more everything's so expensive now. So he had this really intense focus on daily life, and you see that in some of the earlier stories from the 1920s as well. Um, so I give the example of the Currency Reform Conference. There are a lot of um, stories. The one you mentioned, uh, the Devil Messenger. But this is someone who keeps praying to the god of wealth every year, but he gets poorer every year. So he's like, screw that. I'm going to, you know, pray to the god of misfortune this year and see what happens. And then one of his friends overhears him and dresses up as a god of misfortune and convinces him he's going to die at midnight. And so he has a big final fling and borrows a lot of money and gets drunk and has a banquet with his friend. So, uh, you know, what, what do, how do people behave under conditions of extreme poverty? I think, and how do they survive uh, is something that Shijodai is very interested in. So that comes up in a few of the stories. Right. And also the, um, I noticed, um, and you mentioned a little bit at the beginning of this interview, the, uh, you know, the connecting themes and um, one would be, right, how to survive poverty. Uh, And another one I noticed was uh, plagiarism. And, you know, what do you do with that? And is it, you know, ethical? Is it not ethical? Who gets to do it? Um, and, you know, what are the sources for it? Um, and, you know, I was curious about your take on this theme. Um, you know, what was happening in Shanghai at that time that, you know, it keeps reoccurring in one way or another, either directly or obliquely. Yeah, definitely. Um all you teachers out there, all you students, this is a must-read story about plagiarism, right? There, are, there are a couple, right? Both the fiction material wholesaler and plagiarist in Western dress or plagiarist in a Western suit. These deal explicitly with plagiarism, and and that apparently, you know, these seem symptomatic of 1920 Shanghai. There were hundreds and hundreds of new periodicals appearing, and they were all desperate for content. And so they just ripped each other off. Like I found, you know, whole books. They just changed the cover and sold it under a different publisher's name. And so apparently plagiarism was rife. Everyone's just out to make a buck. There's no regulation at all. And so Sujo and I thought this is terrible for editors because they try to screen all of these submissions that they're getting. But invariably, one or two will slip through and then a reader will say, hey, that was published in this other magazine. You know, just a few weeks ago, but they can't check everything, and so he just turned this into fodder for a th- quite a few stories, and and in one of them he allows, well, actually I guess in both of them he allows the plagiarist to kind of talk back and say, you know, what's wrong with plagiarism? It's like pretty much the same as translating, right? People do this all the time. What's the big deal? Right? Um, but this was happening at the same time you'd have popular fiction periodicals like. Um, the Saturday, Li Bai Liu, right? a very, very influential popular fiction magazine. They would have these advertisements saying, you know, watch out, you thieving vermin right, who plagiarize. If we find out who you are, we're going to name and shame you in our paper. 
So you can you can you can match this with some other historical sources to see that this was indeed indeed a big thing. So if you've ever had any problems with plagiarism, this book will tell you how to deal with them. Or at least how to make <laughs> yeah, money I from think, them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think actually I was um I was about to ask about, you know, um whether you know your recommendation would be you know for for these stories uh, or you know what's the recommendation for teaching these stories right in the classroom because to me um when i was reading it felt very um you know timely and you know say in a survey class or you know just to even in a history class uh this is very teachable material and you know it raises a lot of questions from what is literature right um how do you start reading a short story to, you know, problems of plagiarism, you know, world history and, and so on. So, um, you know, just kind of as an aside, I was curious about your take on, on the pedagogical uh, aspect of the book. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've wondered, I'm very interested in crime fiction and other crime related genres. And I've taught a course at UBC called China Vice uh, that focuses specifically on uh, different dealings with crime in Chinese literature, modern, modern especially. But back to, you know, Judge Bao, Gongan Xiaoshuo, this court case fiction and the like. And I thought, well, maybe for a plagiarism module, should do what Xu Zhuo Dai did, where we, he has this one story where he just says at the beginning, okay, reader, the, the story you're about to read is plagiarized. See if you can figure out how I plagiarized it and where I plagiarized it from. And so it's a stunt where he's trying to engage with his reader. And uh, so you can read the story and see if you can figure out in advance which one it was. But he keeps you hooked. And then in the next issue of the magazine, that's when he reveals his trick. So you could definitely do this as a pedagogical method and say, okay, if you can successfully plagiarize, then you pass. But if I can detect where you plagiarize from, then you fail. But there are some kind of ethical issues involved with that. So I haven't done it myself. But I, I encourage you all to try that and let me know how it goes. We can have a follow up, you know, a few months from now, uh, to see what are the the results of this. Right. right. Yeah. Um, have all the students try to figure out, right? That's a, but I don't know. I don't know if that's quite the way to go about it. So it's all it's all fun and games. It's all fun and games in these old stories from eighty years ago. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it's really captivating. So um, I was hooked myself, but you know, I. I'm really curious to to find out what our listeners would think about this. Um, and um, so, you know, about the, the trickstery and uh, the way the stories keep you hooked, I also noticed that um, there are some very interesting mechanics, such as, um, you know, accommodating embedded narratives, using the dream tropes, um, and, you know, things like this in the stories. And, you know, I was just curious to know what was the most captivating of these techniques for you? Like what made the translation process more, you know, captivating for you? Yeah, there are definitely a few challenges. Uh, the joke names you already mentioned. So Shijo I really, really love joke names. And he has a lot of throwaway jokes in here. Uh, but some that are motifs that kind of stick throughout the story. And so figuring out how to render those names was a lot of fun. and. Um, I think it's possible. I think it's, uh, uh, I also became attuned to, there's like a really close resonance between some of his comedy and farce and the detective genre. So this, this, I wasn't looking for this, 
but I did notice after a while that actually, you know, a few of these stories are also detective stories. Like, you know, somebody's stolen a pearl necklace or, you know, somebody has uh, committed some other crime and we have a detective figure, like trying to figure it out. So that was another another thing that caught my attention. Um, and then you have other, you know, I tried to sneak in a few stage plays here. Right? It's very hard to get translations of 80-year-old stage plays published nowadays. But Shutodai, this is one of the ways he started, right? One of the things he was famous for. And I think some of them stand the test of time. Like they, they could easily be performed now. And I've actually, for, for my fourth year Chinese course at UBC, I've had students perform a father's duty, right? This is where a father and a son are both courting the same prostitute, Dahlia. And so they, you know, pass each other in front of the brothel and try to get the other one to keep going on his way so that they can slip inside the front door. So students had a great time uh, performing that one as well. Um, so there's, I think, a lot of that that um, dramatic flair in the fiction as well where you'll have a Shanghai you know, street scene that is set up like a stage scene, where you have onlookers on the stage watching what other people are doing and being deceived by what's happening there. And so I think a lot of that staginess is really key to Shujodai's comic aesthetic. And I, that keeps coming up again and again. It does. And I think... Um... I wanted to ask you uh, also about the the drawings, um, you know, the visual element. Um, and it wasn't clear from the book whether they came, you know, they were added uh, at the time of the writing when they were published in the newspapers or, you know, uh, wherever they were published in, or this is a later edition. Uh, because the, the visual element, right, that um, you, you mentioned earlier and the way you are transplanted into, you know, the, the Shanghai environment in the Republican era is quite remarkable in all of these stories. Um, so, and also the fact that they have some sort of pictures, right, that you, you, can, you can look at while you read. Um, so um, do you uh, know anything about these, these drawings? I certainly do, yes. I, I provided all of them. I didn't draw them myself, but they're from... So like in the, all of the Liamao stories, each one, each of the 12 stories came with an illustration, this like small chatu illustration. Um, and so, yeah, we, I created images from them, right, scanned them and, and we included them. So I'm not sure who actually did the illustrations, but they accompanied the first appearance of these works in the 1940s. And so you can see what Liamao was envisioned as looking like. And he's a very chubby, chubby figure who wears a Western suit. And, and I've also seen a couple of posters of Liamao films from the, I think, 1939 to 1940, 41. That period, there were a number of films made about this character. And so you can see roughly what he looked like. And, he, and we have photos of Xu Zhodai as well, a few of which I include in the book. And he looks pretty similar. So this is clearly a self-portrait type of character here. Um, so we have that, and then there are also in the introduction, I included some of the images and illustrations that appear in a book called Jokes with Cartoons, Xiao Hua, Xiao Hua, the second second Hua being paintings or illustrations. And so there are these fantastic Art Deco illustrations from this 19, uh, 
1938 book. So I'm, I'm very proud to have the first book with an Art Deco turkey in it since 1938. It's really fascinating. And I was very, very impressed to, to see that, um, you know, all of these are included in the book um, because, you know, it's, it's harder to find and also to, to, to get them published. So um, I think they blend very, very well with, with everything that the book does. And, you know, speaking of that and leaving the, the stories and the farces aside for a minute, I would like us to talk a bit about the meta level, um, specifically about the translation process, you know, the challenges and, you know, what were the fun parts, uh, what were the less fun parts um, in, in the translation project. And I know this is not your first published translation project, um, but, you know, if you could expand a little bit on that as well. Sure. Yeah, and I, I translated a number of these stories about maybe eight years ago and then revisited them uh, later on when I got closer to having enough for a publication. And there were there's a little bit of Shanghai slang in there, which I needed to look up for sure. And fortunately, there's a 1935 book of Shanghai slang with cartoons even to, to illustrate them that, that gets into a lot of, you know, usually having to do either with fraud or with sex, like one of these two things. And so some of those appear in, in uh, Xu Zhodai's uh, works. And so I needed to kind of consult that since I don't speak Shanghainese myself. So that was one challenge. Um, I think part of, part of the challenge was just, well, okay, another thing was I now also worked from the originals. And so you, it's, you know, vertical text, and the punctuation in the 1920s was some was not what we have today, and so especially if the 1923 1924 works is very different from what the 1940s, and so figuring that out and making decisions about where to, you know, very mundane stuff about like how long your sentences should be, was another challenge. But uh, you know, I did go over these a few times because I really wanted them to sing and be funny in English to mix metaphors. Uh, so that was, I think, the the ultimate challenge there. So we'll see see how well it did. But and the other the other challenge was just selection. And Shujodai wrote hundreds and hundreds of works, and he wrote a few novels. There's one, um, Omnipotence or Wanneng Shu, or the ability mm-hmm. to do everything, which I think is worth translating. But it would be too long for one anthology. So uh, um, I had also translated a few other things for Renditions Magazine, which I left out which are more on the, you know, they're about female impersonation or the more like detective stories and uh, comic stories per se. So I left those out. So I think selection was the other challenge. Right. I mean, the, the corpus is quite, quite impressive. And I think, you know, everything is fascinating and the space and the time of this interview can only open the opportunity for more conversations later on. Um, so uh, since we already took a lot of uh, your time, uh, would there be anything you would like to add to bring up for the listeners? Well, and I guess for like colleagues in the academy or students who are interested in China uh, from you know, the pre-Mao period, there's still a lot of treasures, I think, to be found and you know, explored and translated. So I think there's still a lot of good translation work to be done, which I would encourage people to delve into. Uh, for people who don't know Chinese, and there are already some fantastic existing translations of Chinese literary comedy from all eras, you know, from uh, early joke books um, to 
you know, the latest, uh, the latest uh, novels that are, you know, yin and and the like. That some of it's very bleak, dark humor. But I think there is a really strong current in modern Chinese letters that uh, focuses on this, um, as well as some fantastically funny films as well. So um, I think that is one important element to pay attention to. I'm also very intrigued by, you know, in the internet era, it's much easier for anybody to become an entrepreneur and a self-promoter. And so I think you see a lot of similar behaviors that we see in Xu Zhodai's life and his works. Right. He like really venerates these entrepreneurial figures. And so I think one one question to pay attention to is like what what does that look like in the Internet age, in the age of the blogosphere, of social media? How do people promote themselves? What are the gimmicks and the novelties they use to try to attract attention? That I think these are issues that are still with us. And Shujo Dai was a very much a pioneer in some of those aspects. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, with with the era of mobile phones and, you know, this snippet of, you know, laughter that some of us sometimes are after, you know, in our very busy days. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you can also categorize it, uh, you know, by age or profession or, you know, all sorts of other categories that would um, make the research even more intricate than it already looks like. Um, so I think that's a very ripe area of research for anybody who's who's interested or just fascinated uh, by it. Um, and, you know, speaking of interests and fascinations, um, what are your current projects, Chris? How's your summer looking? Uh, summer is looking busy, but fun. I'm uh, working to finish a book on Chinese film classics. So this is still working in the Republican era and some of the what I consider to be the best um, surviving films from that period, writing a book which deals with essentially one film per chapter, and we'll have about 16 chapters uh, focusing on individual films. And so these are films in all genres made by many different studios, and delving a little bit into the surrounding print culture, but mostly focusing on the, the works themselves as texts. So that's one thing I'm, I'm working on. And another is I'm working on a project that deals specifically with Chinese concepts of deception. And so this grows a bit out of these trickster stories, right? And so Xu Dai was very influential for me um, in that respect. But, you know, I'd been wondering, like, why were there all these trickster stories in 1920s Shanghai? Like, what was going on culturally? And the more you look, the, the more you find, right, there's all of this black curtain expose fiction. You have anthologies of swindler stories that are, you know, you know, jia uh, right? These like remarkable tales of fraud. And so this was, uh, I think, uh, a relatively unrecognized genre that the historians don't pay attention to too much. And if you jump back to earlier periods like the late Ming, you can also find similar anthologies being created. And so I'm interested in um, how does fraud and how do notions of deception affect how people write, um, how people think about the kind of truisms and the commonplaces that they put forward about uh, groups of people, and also how they use them as a mechanism or kind of the central thread in storytelling. So I'm interested in, in looking that question from a bunch of different aspects and have been uh, collecting, and I should solicit from your listeners your, your your swindler and fraud tales 
because I do think it is the making of a good story. There's a lot of evidence from around the world to suggest that this is a common human interest. So I'm interested in the Chinese, uh, some Chinese expressions of this interest. Yeah, I think you you're very right in saying that there's um you know there's a common thread that goes around the world that looks at tricksters and swindlers and at least from um you know what I've been been reading even myths have you know and like some sort of traditional type of stories that you would call like that have this idea of the trickster that um that comes uh, comes in and either stabilizes the plot or you know advances it to a certain extent. So I think besides the fact that it goes into um, a specific genre, it also has a lot of connections with other other areas, um, which only proves that this topic is um, really fascinating. And I would encourage everybody to 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 dwell into it if they have the time. Uh, but for now, I, I really want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk about your work with us. And I wish you good luck with all these projects and the ones to come. Thanks so much, Victoria. This has been a lot of fun.